0: YourWelder.com was built by actual industry welding experts who actually perform this type of work on a daily basis. And here's the best part. They're veteran owned and operated. So go check them out at YourWelder.com. And also feel free to check them out on social media where I'll include their links in the show notes. I remember as a young police officer, I was sitting in the uh, training room with several of the other new hire police officers when this old... Salty Sergeant walked in and he was carrying this box, and it's uh it's one of those like memo boxes, the brown office boxes, and it had a lid on it. And he took the lid off and he set it on the table. He set it on the table next to the box, and he was just talking to us, and and you know the whole time we're kind of listening to what he's saying, but we're, we're watching this box too. I'm like, is is there like a rabbit or a snake or something going to jump out of his damn box? Like, what's the point of this box? And he was just kind of feeling us out and uh then he started asking some questions and he's like, So you think you think you gentlemen wanna be wanna be the police? And we're all I mean, shit, I was what, twenty, twenty-three, twenty-four years old, something like that, twenty, twenty five, somewhere around there. And we were really motivated to be to be cops, you know, and it's uh, you know, I grew up watching cops, and to me being a police officer was exactly what that show was. It was pulling cars over, chasing people down, drunk people, um, you know, uh, burglars and, but that, that show doesn't show you policing in its entirety. What that show doesn't, doesn't show you and what police shows are, you know, fire shows and all that. What they do not show you is they don't really show you the real ugly side of this thing you know, because they cut the cameras. There's certain, there's certain things that are just too graphic for TV. They don't show you the destroyed families. They don't show you the divorces. They don't show you the, um, the lack of empathy that we have for one another, the lack of compassion that we start having for people. They don't show you the alcoholism. They don't show you the substance abuse. They don't show you the behavioral changes and all these things that we go through. And while this, I won't say his name, but I always looked up to this sergeant. He was a Marine veteran. So, you know, he, he certainly, you know, stood out to me as a fellow Marine. And as he was talking to us, he just looked at us. I think there's six, seven, eight of us sitting there. That's at this long table, this straight table. And we're all in a side by side. And then he asked us, he said, are y'all sure that y'all want to be cops? And we're all like, "Yes, sir." We're we're very sure. He goes, "Because what I'm about to show you, you're not ever going to be able to unsee." And he said, "Are you sure you want to be cops?" And now we're we're like, "Damn, yeah, man. We're sure. We just want to see what's in that box. Like we couldn't wait." But he wasn't lying because what he was about to show us, we would never be able to unsee. And he pulls out this—I'll never forget—he pulls out this picture, and it was a Polaroid. It was a Polaroid picture, and it the. The picture was facing him and he goes, what I'm about to show you, he goes, is the real side of policing that nobody understands or nobody really gets to see. And he goes, when you get to this point in policing, when you get to where I'm working right now in child sex crimes, he goes, this is the stuff you're going to see. And you got to ask yourself, are you really ready to do this job? And he goes, I'm going to lay these pictures in front of you. And I want you to one by one, look at them. And he goes, we're going to go through this entire box. And what he was trying to do, he wanted us to second guess why we wanted to be there. He wanted to make sure that we could see these things and say, you know what? Yes, I still want to be here. So what he did is he put this, he he would put one picture down in front of, uh, in front of the first recruit sitting there or the first new hire, excuse me. And he says, "I want you to look at that process it and pass it down." And so, as we're all sitting there in a line, I was about middle of the line. All I could remember thinking is, "What? What is this picture?" And you would see the person pick it up and look at it, and they couldn't look at it but for like a couple of seconds, I mean, tops. And they would put it down and slide it like they didn't want to see it. They didn't want to see it. And as soon as he would slide that picture, the the the, the new per, the first person in the line, as soon as they would slide it away, he'd drop another one in front of them. And he would tell them, look at it. And you could tell they didn't want to look at it. And so by the time it got to me, I had no idea what what was coming my way. I just knew whatever it was, it was pretty graphic. And when the pictures got to me, what it was, was it was child pornography. And it um, it was very, very dirty, nasty things. And I don't think you could do this today. I don't think that a supervisor could get away with showing those images and maybe they could, I don't know, but not in the manner that it was done. And what he was trying to do was show us this. Once we started going through some of those photos, nobody wanted to look at them anymore. We kept pushing them away. And he asked us, he says, why, why won't y'all look at these? And we told him, "It's like, it's fucking disgusting. He goes, that's right. It's fucking disgusting. And he went by and he picked all the pictures up. We never made it through the box. We couldn't, we couldn't make it through it. And he put him back in the box and he says, now i got to ask you this. When you have the person in custody who is doing that to these children and you're in a room with them all alone, what are you going to do? How are you going to handle your composure? And how are you going to interview that suspect so you make sure that you get a airtight case against them? How do you hold that all together sitting in a room with a human being like that? And he goes, that's the part of police work nobody gets to see people know it exists but nobody ever gets to see it. Thank God and that's what you got to be ready for And if you think yeah I mean think about the people that work I have a buddy of mine he works um, he works for a federal agency and I don't know if I've ever talked about this but he worked in one of those um, child, child sex crimes units and he said it was one of the hardest things he's ever had to do in his entire law enforcement careers work in that and he said because we we don't even make a dent in what's going on out there. And this man has children and he has to go home and pretend like he doesn't know any of this stuff about what really goes on in the real world. And I don't know why I sat down and started thinking about this yesterday. Maybe it was because of a conversation I had with some folks that I had over recently that we were sitting around some police officers and we were sitting around, we were talking about it, but that story was fresh in my mind. And I'll never forget that. And I would never forget, um, some of the scenes that I had to go work on as a police officer, uh, including, you know, without getting too graphic, I remember just, I remember one of the first, one of my first nights on patrol by myself, I was dispatched to a call where a mother showed up to a gas station with her two sons. They were very young and she caught them having intercourse and she was mad, rightly so. And I asked her, where did they learn this? And she says, I don't know. I do have a new boyfriend that lives with me. And then so we did our paperwork and turned it over to the detectives and the case went wherever it went because when you're on patrol sometimes you don't you don't follow up with all the cases because you're out there taking so many calls it just you never get they never circle back to you so I'll never know what happened with that one. And that's probably one of the only ones I'll just talk about openly. The rest of them I don't even discuss. Um I think I think part of the reason I I came up with um, the idea to talk about this, or not even came up with it. I just sat down and it came out. Um, I was out of town last week. I was in Peoria, Illinois. I was at the TEDCon 22 conference. It's a big conference put on by OSF Healthcare, and it's doctors and nurses, emergency management teams, and stuff like that. I was the closing keynote speaker for this, and I was proud to be part of that. And it's it's exciting because. I'm proud to say now that post-traumatic purpose, the the course that I teach, the keynotes that I present on are not now are no longer just for emergency service personnel. We've actually crossed over into the healthcare system where we're starting to address nurses and doctors and clinicians and all this. I've done private training for clinicians and stuff like that. But when you can start crossing over and getting into the medical conferences, that's I wouldn't say an accomplishment, but it's, um, it certainly is, um, a needed thing because what I, what I've noticed with a lot of training in the emergency services is, or I wouldn't even say emergency services, but training with mental health is this. It's a lot of the same old stuff. It's a lot of the doctors talking about this. A lot of the clinicians talking about this, a lot of the therapists talking about that. And there's nobody really doing the, um, the point of view side from the boots on the ground people. There's nobody really teaching it from that perspective. Everybody's teaching the uh, the, medical, um, the medical portion of it. But from my experience in many, many conferences and classes, there's nobody really talking about, hey, us, what we go through, what we see, how it affects us, how it affects our families. And that's why I'm so proud to do what I do. And I'm telling, I always say it. I'm like, I need help. I need more people. There's, I'm not the only guy out there with a story. I'm not the only guy out there who can talk to people. We need more of it. And we need more people doing it very soon because I went into that conference. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I went into it a little apprehensive and initially I thought, well, this is outside of my scope. This is above me. These are well-educated people that know the brain. They understand behavioral concepts with post-traumatic stress on a level that I do not, they understand it, um, from a different perspective. And so I'll be honest. I, when I went into that, I was apprehensive, but holy cow, was it, it was good, man. It was, uh, I was, I was super proud to, to have closed that event out. And, uh, I'm, I, 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 I mean, I, I'm trying to be humble here. Um, <laughs> definitely connected with them. And it made me realize just then that I need to be speaking to more medical conferences because I had some people pull me aside afterwards and they're like, yeah, we, we get it because we go to these medical conferences and it's kind of the same old message with the same old PowerPoints with the charts and graph stuff. And let's get gritty and let's talk about this stuff in a way that's never been talked about. It's crazy just how similar nurses and doctors are to the frontline first responders and military people, uh, they still see the same things we see. It's just in a different environment. It's in a more controlled environment. That doesn't mean they don't experience chaos. That doesn't mean they don't experience, um, the same things that we experience. Maybe it's not as dangerous for them in the environment that they work in at the time. They don't have to worry about burning to death saving this patient. They don't have to worry about getting shot, saving this patient or getting electrocuted by power lines, saving a patient, but they do see the patient the way that we see the patient and they do have to work on them. And a lot of times they can't save them. And Imagine those numbers being an ER doctor, ER nurse, working in those climates day in and day out and went in the NICUs and all this, and you're losing babies. I was talking with someone at this conference where they were this lady pulled me aside and she's like, yeah, she goes, there were times where we were losing three babies a week and I'd never thought about that. I'm like three babies a week. I mean, that's all you deal with. It's dealing with children. And I never, I never thought about it from that perspective. I'm sure I've been on bad, bad kid calls, but think about when you're in the emergency services, I'm going to see if I can make sense of this. When you're in the emergency services, And like me, I was in a larger department. I wasn't in like a New York City department, but I was in a large department, 300 plus, 350, 350 man department. You don't go on every single call in the city. You go on the calls in in your assigned area. Now your assigned area in a city could be small. There could be times where you go on a lot. There could be times where you go on not many. Over the years, I've been to multiple calls involving children. That's over the years. But think about this. This was in one week. This lady had three, three infant deaths and she works in a, in an environment where it's all children all the time. So how do you, how do you process that? How do you deal with seeing that day in and day out? Because everybody, I remember growing up, you think the world of nurses, right? You don't think about their, their psychological state or their mental state. You don't think about that. You think, Hey, nursing is a good job. Nursing gets paid well. They have good benefits in nursing. Nobody thinks about the burnout. Nobody thinks about the unruly patients they deal with. Um, it, just, it just opened my eyes. And I'm glad that I was able to go to that conference and relate to those people. And they could relate to me a little bit. And I'm excited about you know that, that new journey into the, um, the healthcare system alongside of, you know, what I already do with first responders. So this episode is dropping Monday, the 29th, and I'll actually be on the road uh, up into the uh, Atlanta, Georgia area where I'm going to be teaching post-traumatic purpose at the uh, Cobb County Public Safety Foundation, the um, August the 30th and the 31st. We're going to have first responders from all over Cobb County and their spouses and um, it's going to be good stuff, man. I'm I'm super excited. That's been a long time coming. I had a gentleman reach out to me. I want to say that was last year to make this happen. And, and finally they were able to get it sponsored and everything. And we're going to go do it and we're going to, we're going to have the tough conversations that we need to have. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to, I'm going to circle back to what, what I started with talking about, um, about being ready to be in these lines of work and, um, I've completely lost train of thought a minute ago and I ended up going on to something else. But I realized there was a there was a point I was trying to make. And I while I was in Peoria, Illinois, I went to Planet Fitness one day. I was working out and I finished. I was in subway and I was eating and I I looked down and I I'll just say Joe. Um Joe from Texas texted me and um he he said, Hey man, do you have a minute? Can can we talk? So I was like, Hell yeah, man, I'm just stuffing my face. So I called Joe and we started talking and asked him if everything was okay. And he said that he, you know, he said, look, man, I've been on the job a long time. He's a police officer. And he goes, I just need some advice. And I was like, okay, what do you got? And uh, he goes, I got this new girl on, on my shift and I'm her supervisor and I don't think she's ready for this. And he says, and I said, well, why do you, why do you say that? And without going into too much detail, he just he pretty much told me what from a man with a lot of experience, he's seen a lot of cops come and go, you get a pretty good gauge on people. And he says, I don't think she's ready for the reality of this job emotionally. And I said, Have you had that conversation with her? And he said, No. And I go, Well, that you need to start right there. You need to set your rookie down. You need to set her down and ask her what what do you think this job is about? And what do you think this job is going to be? And listen to her and hear what she has to say. Because I think a lot of these kids, a lot of them are naive of what they're walking into. And a lot of them, emotionally, they are not ready for what they're walking into. Same with nursing. You know, you know you might see some bad things here and there. But I don't think that they understand the level or severity of bad things that they're going to see. And I said, sit her down and talk with her. And ask her, and look her in the face, and, I, and, I, and reminded me of that, that uh, sergeant that, set, that showed us those pictures. And I told him, I was like, don't show any pictures. But ask her, are you ready to see raped children? Are you ready to see murdered mothers? Are you ready to see battered spouses? Because that's what this job is. It's not all helping little old ladies cross the street. And it's not all arresting the shoplifter. Are you ready to respond to one of your coworkers house after they've committed suicide? I say that because that happens a lot. I've I've run into a lot of people that have been been the initial responders to their coworker's suicides. Are you ready for that? Because those are things you cannot unsee and if I don't know that you can ever be ready for that. I think you can tell yourself you're ready. I just don't think you're ever ready for it. And I think that, I think what gets us is the curiosity when we're young because we're, we know, okay, I need, I'm going to have to be exposed at sometimes, And then you do it. And then you're like, what was that? I remember going on some scenes that I don't look just because I talk openly doesn't mean that I talk about everything. All right. um, and I think that's a that's a, a misunderstanding that a lot of people have. They think, oh, Travis is an open book. He talks about everything, so we can ask him anything. Fuck no, you can't. I talk about what I what I'm comfortable talking about. There that's the cool part about what I do. I'm in control of what I want to release. There's things I will never openly discuss with anybody, ever. And then there's things that, okay, I will talk about. But I get to choose what I talk about and what I don't. I've been on some scenes where and I know we've all done this. I had no business being on the scene, but my curiosity got the best of me, and I walked around that corner or I walked into that room because I just had to see. And there's nothing I can do to un- undo that. There's nothing I can I can do to to change that. And looking back, I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I remember my wife told me a story one time about her friend who who she was a EMT for a brief time. And she went on. A, she went on some calls, and she later went on to become like a physician's assistant or something. But she did. She became an EMT so she could get into PA school or medical school, whatever it is they go to. I don't know. That's above my head, pay grade. But she went to a suicide call one day, and as an EMT and a paramedic on the ambulance, the the paramedic stopped her and says, "Just stay out here," because the paramedic already knew that it was bad in there. And she wanted to go in, but the paramedic wouldn't let her. And I think that's one of the biggest favors probably that, that, that person did for her is not let her go into that and see that. But then in the same breath, it's like, Hey, you want to do this job? You got to get your feet wet and you got to, you got to be all in. So I don't know that that is the right thing. I don't know that, that, uh, and this is a conversation I had with my friend. I don't know that shielding them from the exposure. I don't know that that helps any helps them either. Because the problem is if you shield people too much on this job and they stay on the job too long, they become supervisors at some point and they become ineffective supervisors. Supervisors who are out of touch with reality, kind of like politicians that are in office too long, right? And we've all seen those. We've seen people that get promoted up the chain really fast and you're like, how in the fuck did they get here? Because they don't have any experience in the street. These people have never been on the hot calls. What are they doing here? And why are they in charge of human beings? And why are they in charge of us and our safety, right? We all know them. I could go on and on about leadership, man. There's, you're never going to have perfect leadership. People bitch about leadership all the time. But the thing is, leadership is going to be flawed because leadership is not run by robots. Leadership are human beings. Leadership, has they have emotional responses and emotional connections and political responses and political connections. There's so many things involved with leadership. Now, I would like to say a great leader is somebody that is not affected by politics. It's not affected by emotion and they do what's right because it's right all the time, but that's just not the case. I think with what I see in my business, I can I can speak openly and honestly and very bluntly and matter of factly about this. And if the shoe fits, just wear it. Um, this isn't an attack on anybody, but I see this all the time. Everybody knows that there's an epidemic with mental health in this business. I see this all the time. I'm speaking, a man speaking from experience from hundreds and hundreds of events. Okay. Literally. And I see this all the time. When you do these mental health events, the leadership, very few and far between are anywhere to be found. The leadership do the check in the box. They make the event happen and they don't even show up themselves. I've seen time and time again, where top police brass, top fire brass. They'll show up. So their picture is taken with the mayor and then they leave. I've seen mayors show up for a fucking photo opportunity to say, Hey, we're doing what we can for mental health and they'll take their picture and they'll fucking leave. I have seen supervisors promote events so it'll make them look good and polished and like, look what, look what so-and-so is doing is really, is really making a push. And then when come time for the events, these supervisors are nowhere to be found. You know what I mean? Words, not actions. I'm all about actions, not words. Don't tell me what you're going to do. Don't, don't tell me who you are. Fucking show me. That's what leaders do. Leaders will show you. I don't believe in this bullshit. You know, I talk about this in my course, post-traumatic purpose. I talk about it all the time. Leadership is 24-7. When you promote into a leadership position, you abandon your ability to be unavailable. That's just how it is. And that's a hard pill for people to swallow. I've actually had people get up and question that right in the middle of uh, my class before, and it, didn't, it wasn't good. And then it's like, look, man, you cannot be unavailable for your people. It, it just doesn't work that way in a leadership position, especially, especially with a dude like me, maybe, maybe a leadership position in like a corporate industry or some nine to five job. But when you're in a job where people's fucking lives depend on you and people's health depends on you and people's safety depends on you and people's families depend on you. I don't understand how you have the ability to be unavailable to your people at any time. There's just really no excuse for that. That's why everybody's not a leader because everybody's not supposed to be able to handle that position. So when you raise your hand, you take your oath, whatever you do and you take that promotion, you got to take everything that comes with it including the responsibilities. Look around the room. Look around the room next time you're at one of these events. I guarantee you there's going to be leaders missing and leaders that that were a voice for making it happen. I've seen it happen time and time again. It just happened to me the other day, and I was severely disappointed in that. But you know what? I wasn't even surprised. It is what it is. I did an event one time where, you know what? I don't want to turn this into a bitching session because that's not what it is. This is being very matter-of-fact. Words don't mean shit. Your actions do. So if you're in a leadership position, your people are watching you. Take that into consideration. One of the things I, I've always loved about people is this, when somebody's wrong, when they have the ability to own that without making an excuse, my hat is off to them every single time. Most people, if you if you think about it, when most people are wrong, if they even admit they're wrong, they'll have an excuse to back it up. They'll always have an excuse to justify their actions every single time the other day I get a message. I'm so passionate about this. And I'm, I'm, I'm today. I'm talking to you from kind of a a perturbed place. So if, if you can sense that, I mean, it is what it is, but, but I got a message, um, two days ago from a guy I'm big into availability. And when I teach peer support teams, I teach them this, this is the one, the main thing I teach them. I don't give a shit about any of that other stuff you learn, the compassion part about it, the, um, the scheduling, the checking in all of this. There's only one thing that you need to know being in peer support. The most crucial thing in peer support is this availability. When you sign up to be on a peer support team, that means you understand that you are going to be there come hell or high water for one of your people, regardless if you like them or not, you're going to be there. So you just like those supervisors no longer get to relinquish your availability. You're on the clock. You're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's how it goes. So I get a message from a guy. He says, Hey man, uh, I've been following you for a long time. I got some questions about peer support and we're trying to build and expand this program. And I started reading this message. I was like, all right, man, this is great. This is going somewhere. He goes, but I would like to know some of the main primary components that we should really be focusing on. And you can email me your your answers at this email address. And when I saw that, I was like, what the fuck? I was like, you you just reached out to me. I'm not going to email you my answers. This isn't a goddamn school project. Motherfucker, you're a fireman. You know what I mean? And, and, And this is what I do so I just message him back. I go, what's your number? And now I'm with my kids, mind you at this time. And this is, this is just how I operate. The dude responds back. He goes, here's my number, but don't call. Please don't take this the wrong way. I'm spending time with my, my family today and I don't want to be distracted from that. And I'm unplugging. And, um, but you can text me your, your message or you can email me at that. And I will dude, I hit the fucking roof. I hit the roof and, and you can say, sit back and think, what's the big deal? I'm gonna tell you the big deal. Here it is. When somebody comes to you wanting something from you and you go to sacrifice your time to give it to them, I don't give a fuck what you have going on in your life. You stop and you make time for them if they're making time for you. I thought about my response for a few minutes. I sat there and I was like, the old me would have just broke it off. And I sat there and I stared at that screen and I stared at it. And I was like, come on, Travis, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. So I just kindly responded. I said, I'm going to answer your question here. I said, if you're looking for ways to improve your um, peer support team, the first thing you can do is get off of the team. I said, because your response to me, when you came to me looking for help in this moment, I made myself available to you. I'm with my kids right now. I don't even know you. You're a complete stranger to me. I'm not, I wasn't a stranger to him, but he's a stranger to me. So understand that I was giving up my time, my most precious asset that I have in my life. I was giving that up with my children to respond to this man and to help him in his, with his concern. And when he blew me off and told me he didn't have, he wasn't going to make the time for me, that lit a fuse. And I realized right then that's not the guy for peer support. So I told him you need to leave the team and you need to do it now and you need to understand that availability is the biggest thing that you're ever going to be able to give someone when it when when there's a time and need a time for that and if you can't give me the availability right now because you have you you have family time, sorry, you're not the dude for the team. And it, I phrased it a little bit better than that, but um, he actually responded. I actually I called Randy. And I was like, Randy, listen to this shit. I didn't tell him who the guy was because I don't do that. I don't throw people under buses. But Randy goes, you know what? He He's not going to own that. He goes, Randy told me, he goes, Randy goes, you're going to be the asshole no matter what. That guy's going to come back at you. And and, and now you're, you're a fucking dick now, Travis. Well, I was like, well, then I'm a dick. But it's the truth. I've seen it happen too many times. The dude responds back. And you know what he says to me? He goes, be humble or get humbled, huh? He goes, I didn't, I'd never thought about it that way, man. Thank you. And he goes, he didn't make excuses. He owned it. And he says, you're right. I should have made myself available and I'm sorry. And he went on to explain a couple of other things. And I was like, you know what? Mad respect, dude, mad respect for you. Because out of a hundred people, only that guy had the balls to own his shit. You know what I mean? Like if, if that would have happened to a hundred people, you would have gotten a hundred different responses on why I was the asshole in that, in that moment. But he didn't do that. So, you know what I did then? I said, you know, I said, Hey, thanks for owning, owning your shit. I'm here, bro. Here's my personal cell phone. Call me anytime. No more of this message and shit. You call me. I like dudes like you. And that's how it works. Don't make excuses for your shortcomings. And the same is true in recovering with post-traumatic stress and mental health issues. The more excuses you make, the further you set yourself back, the more hurdles you have to overcome. If you lay out the truth in front of yourself and say, hey, look, this is all I have to do. I got to stop lying to myself and I got to stop making these obstacles harder to to navigate. Then, when I start becoming honest with myself, that's when I start seeing the true growth within me. And that's what I'm all about. I'm all about growth. And I'm all about being, being straight up with who you are. And be that way with other people too. You know, I've, I've never been a popular person amongst a lot of people because I am too honest. People can't handle the truth. A lot of people have a hard time accepting what comes out of your mouth. I'm not saying you have to go around and point out flaws and this, because I'm nobody to do that. But if you come to somebody like me, with a question or a concern, don't get pissed. When I tell you what you don't want to hear. And that's the problem. Too many people, their ears are too delicate and their feelings get hurt because they can't handle the truth. They need somebody to lie to them. They need somebody to fluff them up. You know, it's uh that tough love thing. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than a kick in the balls, a slap in the face. And it's like, look, that doesn't mean you're a failure. That means you need to wire your shit a little bit tighter and you need the proper motivation so you can focus on yourself and focus on what needs to be done. I don't see fault as a weakness. I see fault as a strength. If you apply it appropriately, admitting fault and owning fault with no excuses is an extreme strength. Admitting fault and having nothing but excuses to justify it is an extreme weakness. I'm big into energy, man. I think um I think you run into people. I meet a lot of people and it's weird how when I'm out there or you know, even with Instagram, you just have certain energies and chemistries with people. And it's it's a beautiful thing because when you're at a conference and you just start talking to a complete stranger, sometimes you're sitting there thinking, Man, how the fuck can I get out of this conversation? And then boom, within the next breath you're talking with somebody else that you've never met. And you just don't want it to end because there's just an instant palpable chemistry. I'm not saying like, like, like sexual or anything like that. There's just a chemistry and it just works. And that's why I love talking with people. It's because you never know, you never know who that chemistry, what kind of chemistry you're going to have with people. And it's weird how, how infectious that is, how People come and go into your lives. I've had a pleasure over my life meeting so many people. I mean, it's just, and how one, one minute you can just be having a shit day and then all of a sudden just a message from somebody or just the, like just the thought of a conversation you had with someone can instantly turn your day around and just re-energize you. People are magnificent, man. So you have you have um, two different types, and this is just my layman's terms types. You have energetic people that will charge your batteries and then you have people it's like you can't turn your lights off, but the key and the key is off in the ignition and it's just going to drain your batteries and there's people that will drain you and there's people that will charge you and I highly recommend that you find those people that will charge you because there's nothing worse than surrounding yourself with people that drain you. Um, especially when you're in a mental health crisis or you have, you have problems because Hey, maybe you're the draining person. I know I've been I'm not always an energetic person. I'm not always the person bringing energy to people. I get it. I try to be aware of that. I try to be a, a happy guy. When I meet people, I don't, I've, I have this saying, I've never really known a stranger. You hear me talk on these podcasts about, I don't like people. I don't like being around people, but also if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you'll understand. You'll be you'll be able to see the growth of a man who has grown away from that. I'm not as reclusive as I used to be. I was a very damaged person when I first started this podcast, and a lot of the 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 stuff that I was spewing came from a very bad place. And it's not like that anymore. As I spread my wings and I'm and I'm in this this amazing growth uh, phase of my life, I recognize the beauty in in relationships now. I recognize the beauty in other people and the how necessary it is to stay in, in constant communication with people. Because what happens when you recluse so much and you become so unplugged from everything, the only thing you have are your thoughts. So if those thoughts are bad, you're going to be dwelling all day. Whereas if you're sitting out on your farm like I am today and you're in a bad place, and then one of those energetic people show up, one of those people where you have an instant palpable chemistry with and you start talking, they can pull you out of that rut. And so the more people in your life like that, the better your chances at overcoming or just, or managing this thing becomes. It's extremely beautiful. Don't let people waste your time. I've said this time and time again, your time is your most valuable commodity and people will steal it from you people will take it from you every chance that you let them. Don't let them do that. Don't let people take advantage of you by taking advantage of your time. If you're going to give your time to people, make sure you give it to the right people, not the wrong people. I've had a very, um, very tough few weeks. And just like I say, when you go through mental health crises, it's not like you can just flip a switch one day. It's not like, hey, I'm in a bad place today and all of a sudden I'm going to be happy tomorrow. It doesn't work like that. How it works is through a series of events that you you live your life through. All right? um, it's, it's these different things you employ in your life to make your days get better. It's the right people that I was just talking about, the right attitude, the right focus, the, um, the unplugging from toxic things like social media and stuff like that, and trying to regroup and refocus when you're in these bad spots or these, uh, these, these, I guess not even bad spots, but the not so, um, uh, healthy spots when you're in these places in life, all we want to do is get away from them as quickly as we can. Cause nobody wants that to last. And the problem with people that, that end up committing suicide, it's, they get to a point where They don't feel like it's ever going to stop. It's never going to go away, but it will. You just got to keep fighting every single day. You got to keep pressing every day, even when you don't feel like it. So that's what I do. I I recognize what's going on in my life, and I'm like, all right, how do I, how do I focus on getting back to? I talk about the roller coaster, right? When you bottom out, you just want to get back on that peak. How do I get back to that peak? Well, it's a series of events. One, you got to stop arguing with people. If you're arguing with people, people that have spouses, people that have home lives, you got to find a way to knock that shit off, right? Two, you got to find the things that make you happy and you got to introduce that into your life. And if that comes in the form of talking with other people, if that comes in the form of um you know, just going on a horseback ride, whatever it is, then that's what you have to do. You got to find a way to do those things to get you back on track so you can get back to the peak of life. So as I'm sitting at the breakfast table the other morning, my daughter's looking at me, my oldest daughter, she looks at me and she goes, daddy, she goes, if you had any superpower in the world, what would it be? And I sat there and I thought about it and she's looking at me on the edge of her seat. She's anticipating me saying some goofy shit, but I didn't want to lie to her. And so I simply looked at her and I said, it would be to be happy. All the time. And she just looked at it and she tried to process that and said, okay, well, mine would be water. And then she would talk about the power she would do with water and all this. And I was just, I was smiling ear to ear because it was like, she's so naive to the world. And it's such a beautiful thing. She doesn't understand that happiness isn't forever. You only get, you only get so many glimpses of happiness in your life. And at some point they start to run out. And I would love for them to never run out. I would love for them to, I would always love to be smiling and always love to be happy, but that's just not true. Um, I I know too much, you know, and it's uh, I've, I've, I've seen and done too many things to understand that happiness, you have to create that. It doesn't just show up at your doorstep every day. Hence that book, create your own light that I wrote. You have to create your happiness. You have to make it happen. And if you're sitting around waiting for it, you're never going to have it. Happiness doesn't show up at your door like a fucking UPS man. You know, it just doesn't work that way. You have to get up off your ass in your miserable condition and you got to go find it. It's no different than if you were dropped out of a plane into the middle of a, a desert or the middle of a, a, a snow-capped mountain, and it's either you can stay there and die, or you can, you can start humping. That's what we call hiking in the, in the Marines. I don't want y'all to be sick. You can start humping or beating feet like we call it. You can start beating feet, find a path to safety, and that safety is happiness in our world. I'll end on this. I was talking with my therapist two days ago, I was sitting in her, uh, sitting in her office and we were talking and she, she asked me something along the lines of, I don't even remember how it was phrased, but I, you know, part of what I go through is, um, I've never felt like I'm enough. And this is me just being honest. Um, I feel like no matter what I do, what I accomplish in life, it's never enough. Like it's never, um, it's never good enough. And I've been like that my whole life. I've been like that since I was a kid. I was always trying to win my father's approval of me. I talk about that in my book, create your own light. My dad was a hard man. He grew up extremely hard. And so he was always trying to prove to his dad that he was enough. Well, when my dad became a dad, nobody taught him how to be a father. So he was hard on me. And all I wanted to do was show him that I was good enough. And I've never felt like I was enough with, with him, but then that crossed over into my personal life. And no matter what I've ever accomplished in life, no matter, I've been at the bottom of the barrel, dude. I've been, <clears throat> I've been at the absolute lowest place a human being can get. And I've made it out of there. And I've made it to, I would like to say, to some of the highest places a human being can get. And I've done that. And when I've stood up there on that mountain, after years of of fighting my way to the top of that thing, I've been on top of that. And I've looked around and I was by myself. And I know what that feels like. And I know how empty and alone that feeling is, right? So it's, I know it. it, sometimes it feels like your work and your effort is not appreciated. It feels like everything you've put yourself through, not just for you, but for other people, it was for nothing. And so when I had this conversation with my therapist, I looked at her and I said, can I ask you something? She said, sure. I'll go, is this just me that feels like this? I said, or do you, cause she deals with a lot of first responders, tons of them. And she said, absolutely not Travis. She goes, There's so many of y'all that say the same exact thing. And that's why I felt like it was appropriate for me to, to bring that up here. I want you to know something. I want you to know this. If nobody ever tells you that they're proud of you, for how hard you've worked and everything you've done and put yourself through so other people can benefit and be happy and other people can have good lives because of you and the hard work that you do and the food you put on the table and the lights that you keep on and the fact that you don't give up. If nobody ever tells you they're 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 proud of you, I'm going to tell you right now I'm proud of you because I know what that's like. It's a shit place to be, but I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for getting up each and every single day as hard as it is. Cause some people don't understand how hard it is to even get up sometimes. Some people don't understand how hard it is to walk through the door and force a fucking smile and pretend like everything's okay. It's very difficult at times. It's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. It's hide what's really going on behind my smile. Because at the end of the day, you feel like nobody really gives a shit anyway. Because if you do sit down and you do tell them and you do talk about it, you're just going to seem like the same old grumpy, miserable person. And that's just not the case. Nobody wants to be like that. Nobody wants to be unhappy. Nobody wants to feel like they're just a person that exists in a family Nobody wants that, but man, when my, when my therapist told me that a lot of first responders feel that same way, it made me feel sick and it made me feel helpless because I know that there's nothing I can do to change the way that those people feel. And it's one of the shittiest feelings in the world. And I left her office. You know what I said? I said these three words. I said, when, when we were leaving, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start saying this to myself, as corny as it may be. And I got to believe in this because, you know, we talk about getting better and there's only one way to get better. And it's to change the way that you think. And it's to change the way that you see the world. It's to change your optics of everything. Because if you stay with the same old tunnel vision, you never grow. And so I looked at her and I said, I'm fulfilled, I'm loved, and I'm enough. And I believe that. And you should too. It doesn't have to be for everybody else. You don't have to be fulfilled for everybody else. You don't have to feel loved by everybody else. And you don't have to be enough for everybody else. You do have to be those things, however, to yourself. I am fulfilled in my heart. I'm fulfilled because of what I do. I'm on the most important journey of my life that I feel. And, um, like this is the purpose of my life. And at this point, my cup is overflowing, right? And I love me. I used to not, but I do. I love myself again. And that's very important for your growth. And then that last one, I'm enough. I am enough. I'm enough for me. And if I'm not enough for other people, that's their problem, not mine, right? And if I'm too much for other people, then that's their problem and not mine. Y'all have a great week. Go kick some ass.